I'm Debbie Woldridge, CEO of outsource training company TTC Innovations, which specializes in providing corporations with customized millennial-focused training solutions. Hosting this series with me is best-selling author Haya Bender, whose credits include five dummies books and a complete idiot's guide, and articles for the New York Times. Please frequently visit our The Millennial Career Playbook website at tmcpb.com, as we're always adding new interviews and other content. Mike Lawrence is a razor-sharp New York City comic who's a staff writer for the Emmy Award-winning Comedy Central series Inside Amy Schumer. Mike is also a frequent guest on At Midnight, has performed on Conan and Late Night with Seth Meyers, has starred in the Comedy Central Half Hour, and has released a comedy album called Satamantium. In this interview, Mike describes his experiences as a millennial in the job market and the winding road that led him to where he is today, which included seven years working at McDonald's. Hey, Mike, so nice to meet you. Uh, Nice to meet you, too. Mike, can you tell us where you were born, where you grew up? Yeah, I was born in Miami, 1983, and then I grew up in Davie, Florida, very rednecky type place, half Jewish. The entire Jewish population of Davie, Florida, probably. <laughs> I didn't know that you grew up in Florida. So that, yeah. that is a reputation as the weirdest state in the Union. Did you find that to be the case? Oh, it's Sarah, yeah, it's, a, it's an awful place. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first job? How old were you, and where did you end up? I was uh, 16, and it was at McDonald's. McDonald's uh, was your was... first job? Yeah. I didn't know yeah. that either. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, 1999. May, May 16th, I think, 1999, to, uh, I think, December 28th, 2006. So I left a little bit to go to college, but always came back and stuff. <laughs> wow. I, so, I went away to college in Virginia for eight months and then came back and just got my job back and then stayed. So, first of all, how did you end up with McDonald's as your first job? It was just close. It was eight-minute walk or so, so it was just easy to get to. And they were hiring always. Through the entire time I was there, the now hiring sign was never taken down. Uh, it's like it, it's like the American flag. It just waves in the wind forever. It's hard to not get hired there. <laughs> so. Someone once said they were interested and asked if you could put a word in? Yeah, yeah. Someone asked uh, a friend of mine, hey, can you put a word for me at the McDonald's? I was like, I could tell them you're alive if that's what you want. <laughs> And as easy as it is to get hired, it's almost impossible to get, you have to really go out of your way to get fired. I remember there was a coworker that spit in the five vat because he wanted to get fired. And the manager was like, well, I think I might have to let you go. <laughs> but it was still just like a questionable thing. <laughs> wow. so, what did you, what did you do starting out at McDonald's? I started out on the front counter cashier. They had me in the grill for like two weeks, but I was too slow for it because if anything was even slightly pink, I didn't want to serve it, and they don't care about that. It's just like, well, it's for a certain time, and if it's within that time, it's fine. So you can't have morals and work the grill. <laughs> So your perfectionist qualities yeah. made you yeah. a bad fit for that particular job. Yeah, they're just um, like trust the machines. They're fine. 
So they moved you up to deal with customers? Yeah. So, I mean, I originally was cashier, and then they tried me out at different places. And then when I came back from college, I kind of just fell into the groove of being the uh, drive through cashier. And then that's where they had me forever, pretty much. <laughs> when you say forever, you mean For the rest years. of my time there, I was the go-to drive through cash person. And was that skill set because you had the ability to understand that voice through the microphone? <laughs> yeah. I know you're going to be to understand English, but uh, <laughs> yeah. It was like they knew that I could do it and that I was quick enough and I'm kind of a monster physically. So they're like, we'll just hide him in the back. <laughs> uh, Keep him from the customer's faces. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they'll be in their car, so if they throw up, we don't have to clean the floor. So it was, yeah, that was basically, it was, you know, I hated it just because it was the same thing every day, but I also grew to be okay with it because I could do my homework back there. I could read. These were the days before smartphones, but I feel like that position would have been so much easier if I had one. I don't think we're ever going to talk to anybody else who spent seven years working at the drive-thru at McDonald's. I had a co-worker. He worked at the McDonald's, but then he also worked at a pizza hut and I think like a Ruby Tuesdays. He had three different jobs. Uh, he had like three or four kids, very religious, and he would always take Sundays off, but he'd be working every other day of the week, at least two of the three jobs. I just remember he would always have this shirt of what other job was underneath because he usually worked at McDonald's in the morning and then you, you could see like a little bit of the Pizza Hut shirt sticking out because <laughs> he'd just go straight there. And, and so that was kind of amazing to me. There was another guy who was, because I usually, I work the morning, so I usually work 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. That was when I came back from college. Before that, I usually work 11 to 7 and only on weekends. But then when I came back from college, I worked five days a week to 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. And there was this guy that he got in at 2 a.m., so his job was to clean the whole place. And I remember there was a washer and dryer with all the uniforms and towels and stuff. And I had to uh, pick out the clean washcloths and stuff, and I found his clothes in there. He'd been using it as his own personal washer and dryer. And like asked me not to tell anybody about it. <laughs> and I'm not sure this is real, but I almost want to believe it was that he was kind of living there. <laughs> I wasn't sure if he had an actual home, which is kind of funny, but also really sad if that's the case. There was uh, an amputee named Stumpy. He was missing an arm, and he insisted people call him Stumpy. I think his real name was Eric or whatever, but you know. He remembers Stumpy. There's lots of Eric's. There's one Stumpy. And he was the one who taught me the grill. So he was super fast with the one arm. It was, it was kind of amazing. And in, it would be like an amazing, inspiring story if it took place anywhere else but McDonald's. <laughs> How he was able to overcome adversity and the severe handicap, but using that skill at a McDonald's. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the most depressing thing about the job was that because that net hiring sign was always up. It was constantly a rotating group of people 
So even when you became friends with someone or you got comfortable with someone, they'd always get switched out. You make it sound like the other one. Don't get attached to to one of the new kids. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. I mean, some of it's like tough to remember because there's so many people. What was the average turnover? People would usually last two to three months. If it was an adult that worked there, you knew they were going to be there for a little while probably. But if it was a kid, someone under, definitely under 18, but even like under 21, be like two to three months. And what do you attribute to uh, to that? Why two to three months and then they were gone? Because I think McDonald's is a job that you take because you have to. My dad was like, you got to have a job. So it's right there. So I took it. And I think that's what a lot of people in that. When you realize how awful it is, you realize you could find anything else. And I just, I just never tried. It just, I just wasn't something that I ever really thought about. And because it was a walking distance, I mean, they would give me uh, lunch breaks, and those would be 30 minutes, and I would walk home and back mm-hmm. because it was a freedom to at least be home for a little bit. I'd go home, like watch a bit of a cartoon or something, and then go back. I mean, never like the life. Or the, there were some people there that were there the entire time, depending. And I mean, some people, yeah, never left. What about customers? Uh, any customer stories that? Um... Oh yeah. Here's the interesting thing because I think about this in terms of the class war. It was always people that only made like a dollar or more than us that were the worst people. You know, you'd get rich people sometimes, especially when they introduced yogurt parfaits and other yuppie items like that. But when when they had those chef salads, you got a new type of lonely housewife type customer, and they were always just dismissive. They were never outwardly awful, but it was people that made just a little bit more because their lives were so terrible. And the only thing that kept them from unraveling was knowing that they were better than you. And they exercised. That was a big thing. So like pizza delivery guys, when they would come through, they were horrible. Yeah, anyone who worked in another fast food place was the worst. There's, there was no McEmpathy. It was just like, <laughs> it was just, yeah, it was like, I make $7, you make $6, I'm better than you. So how did they decide uh, the hierarchy of these fast food chains? McDonald's being like the biggest, it, mm. that was close to minimum wage. I think like Dunkin' Donuts paid 50 cents more. Awesome. And that allowed them to be jerks. You know, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine what it's like now with this whole huge boom of fast casual places. I bet like when Chipotle employees go to Taco Bell, they're the worst. <laughs> they know they're better than that person. Uh, <laughs> but there was a lot of that. Like handiwork people, the, sometimes they could be awful like construction people and stuff. People go into a McDonald's drive through already assuming that the order is going to be wrong, that everyone working there is a drug addict or a failure or some kind of idiot. And me being there that long did not help that at all. (laughs) I don't ever get the revenge that I want on any of those customers who thought I was nothing because it's not like they're ever going to watch at midnight or Conan or anything. (laughs) And be like, oh, that's the guy who gave me McRibs. I'm never going to get that moment. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, I won because I'm not there anymore and I'm alive, but that's all the victory I ever get. 
what was crazy too is you would see like the same customers every day. There's some people I'm pretty sure I saw every single day I worked there, which is funny when it's adults and, and really sad when it's children. I think Super Size Me came out maybe somewhere around like 2004, 2005. And so things are getting more health conscious. They did get rid of the Super Size Fries. They started doing calorie counts and all of that. But starting out, you know, you're like, oh, this is child abuse. You know, buying every is like, child, you're like killing somebody. Did you eat McDonald's yourself? All the time. And I'm pretty sure it is like, I probably lost the seven and a half years. I worked at least, I probably, well, I mean, I know I lost the seven and a half years I worked there. I probably lost an additional like 10. I mean, what it does to your skin working there, the smell. I always felt like French fries. Yeah, what it does to your body. Yeah, you eat it all the time because you're depressed and so you cope. And also, you were only supposed to get half off, but everybody stole. We all stole. You were only allowed to get half off the 30 minutes before and after your shift or your break. But every single person, <laughs> I used to, it's funny, like I would stick McNuggets in my pocket being like, ha ha, I pulled one over on you. And they're like burning in my pocket. <laughs> Did you ever think about moving up a chain, like applying to be manager or something like that? No, because then that would have meant that I gave up. It's funny. As long as I, in my head, thought that I could leave, that gave me a freedom. And then the reality is that's part of the reason I never did. I also mm -hmm. showed up late almost every single day. I showed up mm -hmm. at least 10 minutes late because that was my way of being like, no, you're not going to fire me. <laughs> and oftentimes my breaks, I would take 40 or 45 minutes. That is the joy of working an unfireable job. And they talk to you and they complain. But anytime there was a government mandated minimum wage, they had to give it to me. <laughs> Salary, great increases, yeah. Yeah, I got five raises over my time there. And only two of them I earned. And those are the two special ones. The other three, they had to. So how much were you making by the time you left? I started off at 525 which is $0.10 cents above the minimum wage at that moment. And then I left making $6.45. Wow. wow. Seven wow. years later. Wow. wow. Yep. And last night, I was at the cellar, and this guy was like, oh, I worked there too. And I'm like, how many uh, years? He's like, three. And I'm like, you don't know my pain. Shut up. Uh, <laughs> uh, when I talk about working at McDonald's on stage every once in a while, this happened in Atlanta last year at the Improv. This woman, she she's like, I worked at McDonald's this is in Atlanta. And I was like, oh, uh, how long? She's like, 18 years and still going. There was a soldier in the audience. And I was like, even you have to salute that. I bet her war stories are worse than your war stories. You know, you fought for the freedom she's never had. <laughs> okay. It's definitely where I found my humor because I could make the other employees laugh. I was writing poetry at the time and I would read poems to them, which was sad in retrospect, but I would also always tell jokes. I'd make fun of the customers to the employees. The drive through cash position, that's the person who takes the order, and then they also take the money at the first window. Then there's a runner, and that person gets the food to the presenter. The presenter is the person who hands out the food. The runner and the drive-through cash person 
both have headsets to communicate with each other. The runner can hear the order and all that. The presenter had a headset too. And my job that I assigned myself was to try to get them to break and laugh in front of the person they were handing the food out to <laughs> by making fun of the person. You know, I do different voices and stuff. I am so slow. A lot of fat voices, whatever it took. There was a term that I had called car tour, which were people that were so fat that you just assumed they were half person, half car, because you never felt <laughs> If I could get the person to laugh in the face of the person they're handing the food to, then, then I won. That was the game. So that is fascinating to me because you're essentially saying McDonald's was the incubator. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I was like Roberto Benigni and Life is Beautiful. <laughs> wow. And you make up games and get through it. Wow, what an amazing analogy. <laughs> the, the Holocaust only lasted four years, and I was there for seven and a half. But, you know, <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> I'm really uh, grateful to have gotten that insight. Yeah. <laughs> so what happened ultimately that led you to decide, okay, it's time to move on? I was going to college the whole time. I was studying to be an English teacher, and... Then I decided to start doing comedy in 2005. I'd been doing poetry on stage at coffee shops and stuff, and then decided I should start comedy. And the reason being, I had a, like a traumatic experience that allowed me to think things through, which was the hurricane in 2005, Hurricane Wilma. That took out the power for a week or two, and that just made me rethink things and what I wanted out of life. I was studying to be a teacher. I was starting to do internships, being in the classroom, and just realizing I didn't think it's what I wanted. The revelation that I should be a selfish person instead of helping people, because I'm better at that. Uh, I remember I had to go to a shelter for the hurricane. There were customers there. It's just the weirdest thing because I was trapped with these people. There's like this celebrity moment where they're like, hey, you're the McDonald's guy. And it's just like, wow. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, show business. Uh, <laughs> as AJ Benza would say, fame, ain't it a bitch? And so I remember the humiliation of that and thinking like maybe I was meant for something more. I knew with the student teaching and everything, I was, it was probably going to be a while longer. So I got out. Once I started comedy, I'm like, oh, I got to move to New York. I talked to my parents, and they basically told me, just graduate. So I graduated with an English degree, and I left the McDonald's because I moved to New York. And I worked there up until a week before I moved. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yep. And what did you do when you moved to New York? How did you stay alive here? Um, I worked at a Pinkberry for three weeks, got fired from there. I worked at a city bakery for a couple of weeks, got fired from there. The best job I ever had in New York City was this place called Good Dog, and it was uh, on St. Mark's, and it was a hot dog place. It was $10 under the table, and it was unbelievable. Literally, the way you get paid is the guy would just call you and be like, just take money out of the register. Wow. <laughs> it was awesome. It was the best. And then when we closed, I called him and I was like, hey, we're out of hot dogs. He's like, oh, we're actually uh, out of business. 
And he's like, but take an extra 200, you know. (laughs) For your trouble. (laughs) Yep. And so, I mean, it was really tough. I was really poor and broke. The first few months weren't easy. I thought about, like, going to teach in Korea Hmm. because that seemed like a better idea than attempting comedy. No one really booked me. I was bombing at the open mics with stuff that killed in Florida. It's funny because the McDonald's stuff, I remember I didn't want to talk about it that much because it was something I was more ashamed about. And I would talk about it with New York comedians off stage and realizing that it was funnier and more interesting than the stuff I was saying on stage. And then that's when I embraced it and realized that it's just a part of who I am and it's okay. And of course, New York comics are traditionally poor, or New York artists in general. Oh, yeah. The cliche about the starving artist is is true. (laughs) It's not not just a cliche. Um, It's a very expensive city to live in, yeah. Yeah, right. It's a super expensive city, and comedy doesn't pay anything for a long time. I'm curious, how did you get fired for your initial jobs at Pinkberry and the other place? What happened there? Uh, so Pinkberry, they thought I stole an iPod. Um, that 60 Enya song, and I didn't. But I think they were just on the cusp anyway. I was a decent employee, but I wasn't great. But I would come in because I was tired from comedy and stuff, and they knew like my heart wasn't in it. Mm. Although no one's heart should be in Pinkberry. And... and <laughs> Do you think your time at McDonald's worked against you because you had a sensibility to McDonald's as it doesn't matter what I do, they can't fire me? And Yeah, New York is just so much more competitive with those jobs. You get McDonald's in Florida, it's like, we'll just keep any white trash that comes here. But then New York, the reality is you're up against hardworking people that are doing those same jobs so they can stay in a country that's much better than the country they're from. To me, it's like the worst job that I could ever have at a pink berry type place. But you know, other people, it's genuine opportunity. That's mostly who works those jobs in New York. Really, I thought there was a certain number of struggling artists like you were who also we want to have a flexible job that doesn't drain me emotionally, so that I can go out at night and uh, audition or go out in the day and audition and perform on stage for no money or, or what have you. Yeah, I mean, that's not the reality. Like, really? In New York, those jobs are often held by people who don't have a connection to a better paying under the table job. Mm. You know, I think you have to be legal to work those jobs, as opposed to like if you were illegal and you had a connection, you could make $15 an hour. It's mostly adults, too. But that's just unique to New York. To any other city, it's mostly all kids. So what did you graduate to once you burned your way through Pinkberry and the hot dog place? When did you start moving up? Um, not for a while. So then I worked at this staffing place a little bit, but not long, doing registration and things like that. Those jobs could be anywhere between 10 and $12. And then I was literally out of money. And I worked at LaGuardia Stocking Restaurant for over a year. Basically, like got into a dispute with the manager because I was hired and I left before I was supposed to. I could have apologized or something to get my job back, but I was like, no, this is kind of freedom that I don't have to go to work. (laughs) I started collecting unemployment and, you know, unemployment based on what you made at your previous job. And 
that job was $8.50 an hour, which to anyone else would have been nothing, but because of the years I worked at McDonald's, seemed like a lot. My unemployment was $600 a month. So it was barely anything. And my rent was 600 It was just saving, living very poorly, getting free meals from people. My uncle gave me a couple hundred bucks. My brother gave me like a few hundred bucks. I mean, I look at them as the worst times of my life. I've never really drank or done drugs, but that's like my rock bottom. And how long did that last? That lasted for a while until the end of 2010. I got into Montreal Comedy Festival in the summer of 2010. At that point, I was living in a friend's basement, an actual dank basement, a cellar door and everything. I got kicked out of that place because no one was supposed to be living there. I was able to find another place. I started going out with a woman who's now my wife. She would pay for things. like it. I was very moochy because you get in that mindset of like, I'm an artist and anything's worth my dream and you're not realizing how much you're affecting and hurting other people. But it's true. That's accurate. You are an artist and you are working towards a goal. And Lots of people are. <laughs> you know I mean? Lots of people could do it without that, you know. I just refused to. I mean, I remember there was a moment when I was collecting the unemployment and I had just done my first TV spot, which you know, only paid a thousand or so. And what spot was that? John Oliver's New York stand-up show. That was the beginning. That was your first TV spot. Yeah, oh, that's a, that's, a, that's an amazing first TV spot to be on a John Oliver special. It's on Comedy Central, and that paid a thousand. Yeah, so I mean, it wasn't that much, but the good thing was I could tell people I was a comic, and I really was. But I remember I still needed money, and I went to this bagel place, and the bagel place wanted me to wear a hat, and I got really depressed about that and just walked out because that was always the most degrading part of McDonald's, and I think a lot of my physical appearance of being schlubby and bearded and and all that and wearing comic book t-shirts and just not caring that much comes from the years of being at McDonald's of just like, I had to wear a uniform and I had to do things a certain way. And now getting to live the life I want of someone that does make art, I don't want to ever have to do any of that again. One of my things of defiance when I worked at McDonald's was my beard. They'd always ask me to shave it and I'd always do it a few weeks after I was supposed to because it was the thing of like, what are you going to do, fire me? Was the issue with the beard a conformity thing or was it they're worried hair would get in the food? I was in the drive-thru, so I wasn't even dealing with the food, but just an appearance thing, Mm -hmm. you know. But just nothing actually wrong with having In other words, they had an arbitrary appearance code. I mean, I get it. They They don't want people looking unkempt. And the bagel place, did they want you to wear the hat for sanitary reasons? Like I think so. The... the thing is, all those places, that's what they say, but managers who often work for the food also never wear hats. Mm. Right. You know? So I just was like, I can't. It's like, I was just on TV. I'm not wearing a hat again. And... Draw the line. No hat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The set went really well, and then Oliver took me on the road with him. And that's when I was able to become like a working comedian. So I owe a lot to that guy. I didn't know that. I didn't know that John took you on the road. That's awesome. That's so great. If you forgive me saying, you're one of the best comics in business. 
And once someone who is established like John gets some exposure to you, they recognize how great you are and they want to make use of you. I, I assume, you know, the same thing with Chris Hardwick in terms of having you being such a frequent guest on At Midnight. People who are at the top of business, once they get to see who you are and what you do, they recognize. How did you end up on a show in the first place? In Montreal, and my manager out of Montreal was Brian Bollinger, who had never managed before. And we ended up being together three and a half years as a client and manager. And basically what happened was at the beginning of that tenure, he did good. He made a recommendation that I do a guest spot on John Oliver's headlining set because I think Comedy Central had already turned me down to do the show, but he's like, we'll let Oliver see you. And I had a great set and that was it. Like, yeah, put this guy on. Because John is one of uh, the smartest guys in showbiz. <laughs> and I did it on my 28th birthday. Wow. I taped it. I When I started comedy, I gave myself an ultimatum that if I didn't make $5,000 or get on TV by the time I was 30, I would quit. So I was able to be two years ahead of the schedule. Hmm. And then I started opening for Oliver. The three comedy dads I mentioned in my album was Oliver, Mark Marin, because he had me on the road a little bit and he had me on WTF and that definitely helped. Hmm. And then Tom Papa. I opened for him for a weekend and then he had me write on a pilot of his and that was the first writing job that I ever had. Hmm. So those three guys all saw something in me. I mean, Chris too, but that was later. Mm -hmm. I think that's just how comedy should always work, that people believe in someone and help them out. And that's what happened with Amy. I've never gotten a job through a packet or anything. It's just always been someone believing in me and wanting to help. Did anything happen with a pilot that you did for Papa? Uh, no. Have you done ever scripted work after that? So like two years later, I wrote on two pilots for E! And then I developed my own pilot about working at McDonald's for Comedy Central and just didn't get picked up. They were like, we want something sad and dark and realistic. And it was too sad, dark, and realistic. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> but it was cool that uh, I got the chance. I think that's what it is, too, with the McDonald's stuff. Like, I put everything into that. It, I feel like when that didn't get picked up, I mean, I still talk about McDonald's on stage, but it was, there's that part of me that it was like that phase of my life was essentially over. Hmm. Do a, a little digression. I, I do want to talk about you being a poet because I didn't know that. And, you know, you've got this comic book nerd persona, which doesn't really go with poetry. And I'm curious as to how that developed. And also if you could talk a little about the overlap between poetry and comedy. Well, the overlap, if you do it on stage, they're both live performance, and it's both writing-based, and it's solo most of the time, so there's that connection. I started poetry when I was 15 in high school, my freshman year. It gave me a purpose, because I didn't really have one. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, and I have, like, the worst handwriting. I have this disability in my hand, motor skill deficiency, so I can't really draw well. I mean, I would have loved my life if I, if I could be a comic book artist, that I'd, I'd be happy. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I am happy, but I, I would have been happy a lot sooner. <laughs> I mean, that was another thing with McDonald's. I just started to learn to drive a car. I didn't drive a car back then, so 
my options of where I could work were somewhat limited. I would write poetry. I'd perform it at school. I remember I did like an assembly. I took the same creative writing class over and over again, just so I could keep writing. And the creative writing teacher had me do a poem for Ms. Bevilacqua, who was a teacher for AP English. And then she put me in her class and she helped me a lot. I just talked to her again recently online and she was saying how she always believed in me and stuff. So that definitely helped having somebody. I went to this poetry night every week at the library. It was something to do and I thought I was going to be a famous poet, uh, <laughs> but there are none at all. So being on stage and in front of people and displaying your raw emotions, that's something yeah. you've been doing for just ever then. Yeah, 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 more than half my life now. I mean, a lot of it was, you know, I was an early kid. I didn't get a lot of attention. And then to have that moment where I'm just up there. Mm-hmm. All eyes know. on you. Yeah, I needed that. <laughs> you know, my mom was a comedian. So oh, really? Comedy, yeah. So comedy was always this thing in the back of my head. But I never wanted to do it. And that was one of the main reasons why. You know, nothing your parents do is ever cool. Right. So I'm going to be a poet because that's cool. But you would have had to wear a hat like a beret or something, and then. uh... No. (laughs) No hats. (laughs) Never. I never wear hats now. (laughs) Who was your mom? Where did she perform? In Florida. She never really left Florida, but she did it in the 80s and 90s. She saw Todd Berry at his first ever open mic, which I brought up to him. (laughs) But yeah, she did it for years and years. She was a club comic? Yeah, she featured a lot. She emceed a lot. Hmm. Never past that level, but she also hmm. already. So in addition to holding back my own career at times, I got to hold back someone else. <laughs> was she funny? Did you find her funny? Not at the time. I appreciate her more now and like the sacrifices she made. And I, I can watch now and be like, oh, that's funny. That's funny. But when I was a kid, I hated the idea of stand-up comedy and all that. See, to me, poetry and comedy are very similar. Uh, To me, comedy is a heightened form of poetry. In both forms, you have to write incredibly concisely and elegantly. You have to be aware of not just individual words, but syllables. You have to be very aware of, of sounds and the emotional effects that they're having on an audience. So to me, you're going from poetry to comedy is a very natural progression and also an upward progression because with comedy, you don't only have to make people feel, but you have to evoke a physiological response by making them laugh. And you know if it's working or not because they're either laughing or they're not. Not necessarily it's easy to know if a poem is Does any of that have resonance for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's part of, I think, why I made the switch, because you never know if you're succeeding or not. Poetry is bomb-proof. You know, all you have to do is say the poem, and you had a good set. But comedy, it's like, yeah, it's all reaction-based, and you either did well or you didn't. And there's a lot more on the line. But I think your poetry background was fantastic training in terms of your writing comedy because there are a lot of overlapping skills and you're a tremendous wordsmith, but you're also known for having 
one of the quickest minds in the business. I mean, you think really fast on your feet, which is why you're so great on At Midnight. But also maybe, you know, your ability to do wordplay would also be a tremendous skill for a poet. So I see a lot of parallels there. Oh, absolutely. Uh, So you're now a staff writer at Inside Amy Schumer. First of all, when did that happen and how did that happen? The way that happened, I knew her a little bit, and then I did this show called Roast Battle, and she was there. Amy was there, and so she talked to me afterwards. She liked what I did on stage. When was this? This was last year at the New York Comedy Festival. I hadn't talked to her for like a few months, and then she did this podcast condemning this one comedy club for being awful, and I wrote to her on Twitter. I just reached out. I was like, hey, I thought that was cool that you said that. She came up with this comics bill of rights thing about how comics should be treated better, and I was like, I thought that was really well done. And then she was like, do you want to write for me for the MTV Movie Awards? And I was like, yeah, sure. And so basically I got the job and it went really well. And at the end of it, she was like, you're going to be joining team four if you want. And that's it. She's true to her work. (laughs) So the lessons that I get from that are, first of all, put yourself out there because if you weren't performing, Amy wouldn't have seen you. Secondly, don't hesitate to reach out to someone through social media. Yeah, and she didn't really know me. I did a guest in on her show on season two. So it wasn't like I was this complete unknown, but mm-hmm. she didn't know me that well. Mm-hmm. And then she basically tested you out for the MTV Movie Awards, and she was happy the results. So then yeah. she, she gave you the staff job on her series. So that's one way of moving up in the business. Do you have advice to someone who either wants to work in comedy or wants to work as a writer in the business or just wants to make it in New York in general? I think that the most important thing is believe in what you do, but also be willing to make changes and just be consistent with what you do. In terms of comedy advice, have the act for the career that you want. If you want to be a writer, make sure that your act reflects your writing. If you want to be an actor, then just make sure that your act is showcasing your ability, mm-hmm. the specific abilities that you want people to see in you. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. And treat it like a business, not a hobby. Have fun, but it's important to... Just basic stuff like don't drink so much. (laughs) (laughs) Those are really basic things I see that ruin people's careers. Yeah, be serious about it. And if it doesn't seem like it's going to work out, then either change things or accept the failure. Do you see setting that timeline for yourself of I'm going to do this by age 30 or I have to give this up was kind of something that kept pushing you forward? Absolutely. It was essential. It was something that I had to do. Yeah. Because you need to have those goals with comedy. People look at it as this thing of like, well, now I get to be myself and they slack around. I find so many people initially wanted to get into comedy to make it, but then they just did it because it gives them a cultural identity and then they slack. 
I know a lot of talented, funny people that should be making a living at this that don't, and it's all their fault. Mm-hmm. And you just see that over and over again. They think of it like, oh, I can just get high and then go on stage and things like that, but they just don't take it seriously enough. It's got to be a job. And I think that's the thing that McDonald's gave me, that work ethic, that humbleness, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know what the worst possible job is. I know what it's like to make no money at all. So when I get $25 at a club for a weeknight spot, that's five hours of work at McDonald's. And I'm thankful for that. You can't take any of this stuff for granted. I think that that's something I got from McDonald's. So when you have an opportunity, you work the heck out of it? Yeah. And, and in the reality, too, it is a cruel business opportunities come and they leave really fast. You got to make the most of the ones you have. If you could go back in time and give advice to yourself when you were 16, what might you say? The cheesiest thing is maybe everything would have happened the way it did, but I'm really happy with life the way it is. And I don't know if that guy had to go through that seven and a half years, but If I had a better job early on, I may have never wanted more. And there's nothing wrong. If I ended up being a teacher and just staying in Florida, that could have been a good life. I could have helped people. I mean, I know people say, like, oh, but comedy helps people too. And yeah, maybe it does. But I think being a teacher is a much more noble profession than this. I think being a teacher is absolutely a noble profession. But I think what you do is really important. It is and it isn't. I struggle with that a lot because I don't think that comedy reaches to the lower class enough. People that actually need it. I perform for entitled 20-something way more than blue-collar people who genuinely need the stuff. That part of it is something that I still struggle with in terms of personal reward or any type of altruism kind of withers away when when I see the audience, like if they're able to buy the two drink minimum and the entry fee and all that. It's not the people who need comedy the most. But on Amy, you're going to be reaching anybody who has access to a TV set. Yeah. Uh, Cable. (laughs) 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 Yeah, or Plus. I'm, I'm not reaching the people who need it. Basic cable. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But you see what I'm saying. Right. You know, it, that's why when anytime anyone shits on like the blue collar comedy tour, that kind of stuff. I mean, and those tickets aren't cheap either, but the people that go see that sometimes, like that's the only comedy that they're seeing that whole year. And if that makes them happy, then it's like, let them have it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But it does make a difference in people's lives to have that ability to sit back and look at life in that comedic manner. Otherwise, you work at McDonald's and you make it seem as if it was somewhat of an adventure and it gave you a basis. So it does give people hope and it's fun and people need to have life-hearted moments. I just know that people who look at comedy as this heroic profession. But it's good stuff, though. It makes people feel better. Yeah. I mean, my comedy doesn't, that's for sure. <laughs> Even when I get the audience really comfortable, there's always that part of me that just wants to remind them that I'm white trash from Florida. <laughs> Makes them very relatable to you, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. But then it's also with people that stick around with you after that. Mm. That's your real fans. 
Yeah. But you also have this ambitious side, too. You wouldn't have gotten to where you are. I remember I heard that Jim Carrey, before he started his career, he wrote a check to himself for a million dollars. And he put it in his wallet and he carried it around and promised himself that one day he would be able to cash it. Did you ever have a moment like that? Just the ultimatum thing, I think. That was my version of that. And then another thing that sticks with me is, because I saw him the other day, the comedian Will Sylvance. I did this contest and I lost and he was on the show. He did a guest spot and I remember him talking to me. He knew like how much... I needed to win. He's like, I could tell you needed that money. And I remember he gave me $200 on the spot. Wow. He's like, here. And he said, when I first met Chris Rock, you know, I had nothing. And he gave me this, this amount. And I needed it then. And I could tell you need it now. And I want you to have this same money. And that's something I always think about. I was at the cellar Wednesday and he was hosting. And that was the first time that. You know, I've only been working there for a few weeks, so come around full circle kind of thing was, like, really cool. That's awesome to pay and forward. Just, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I always try to help newer people now. Mm-hmm. I, I'd be nowhere without all the people I've mentioned that helped me out, for sure. Cool. Where do you see yourself going next? What's your next goal for yourself? I mean, I love writing. I would like to keep touring when I can, but I'm really having a great time writing. I mean, this is one of the best shows. I mean, everyone there is incredible. So I've been having a lot of fun with that. But I would have no problem staying in writing rooms. I love the creative process. Maybe take another crack at my own show Mm -hmm. someday. But yeah, I've got no problem working on other people's stuff and just keep performing and I mean, I'm always toyed with the idea of a McDonald's one-man show, or I know how you've talked to me about this, like a, a book. It's funny because there's a part of me that wants to delve more into that, but there is also a part of me that I fully accepted now that was a past part of my life that I can choose to keep looking back at, or I can just move forward and not think about as much. I was pushing more towards the book when cash was tighter for you. That was before you got the job with Amy. So it's not pressure to do. But of course, you should do do whatever makes you happy. One Man Show could be about whatever you want it to be. You're great at stand-up. You're great at storytelling, too. So you're at the level where you can basically do anything you want in entertainment, uh, at least from a a spoken... I don't know if you can sing and dance, but (laughs) from 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 a... writing and spoken word perspective. I have an album, Satamantium. Are you planning to do another album anytime soon? Yeah, I think so. Maybe in the next year. I would love to do an hour special that's definitely on the horizon. It's just getting the material together. Yeah, so I'd love to do that, have the album with it. Cool. Well, Mike, I couldn't be more appreciative of you taking the time to speak with us. You're one of the best and sharpest comics in the business, and it's a real privilege and honor for us to be able to speak with you about the career path you took as an artist and, and as a millennial to uh, get to where you are now. So we really appreciate you sharing everything that you did. Great, thanks. This has just been such an interesting experience. Your life has gone through so many twists and turns and couldn't have ended up better. And where you're at at this very moment, it's pretty amazing, honestly, from the start to finish. And and go McDonald's. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. (laughs) Thanks, Mike.
Thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much. Hi, and I thank you for listening to this interview. Please frequently visit our The Millennial Career Playbook website at tmcpb.com as we're always adding new interviews and other content designed to help you find a job or enhance your career. Mm -hmm.